Peace Corps gives us a chance to show a side of our country which is too often submerged. Our desire to live in peace, our desire to be of help. There can be no greater service to our country and no source of pride more real than to be a member of the Peace Corps of the United States. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the My Peace Corps Story podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lloyd, and I'm here to help tell the stories of current and returned Peace Corps volunteers. If you like what you hear today, be sure to let me know over at MyPeaceCorpsStory.com and connect with me on Instagram at MyPeaceCorpsStory or on Facebook by searching for My Peace Corps Story. Additionally, head on over to iTunes and leave a review for the show. Five-star reviews are extremely appreciated, but more than anything, I want to know what you think so I can better serve my audience. Today, I am very pleased to welcome Rachel Miklas to the show. Rachel served in Ethiopia from 2012 to 2014 as an education volunteer. During her service, she really accomplished a lot. I think you'll really enjoy her story about taking a team of young girls from a ragtag group that had never played on a team to making it all the way to the finals of her regional tournament. Also, she has a very graphic story about slaughtering an ox. If you're not into that sort of thing, I would definitely recommend skipping minute 20 to minute 22 and a half. But otherwise, I think you're really going to enjoy everything that she has to say. So, without further delay, here's episode three with Rachel Miklas. This is this is this is this is my my Peace Corps Peace Corps my Peace Corps my Peace Corps story story story. My name is Rachel Miklas, and this is my Peace Corps story. I am very excited today to be talking with Rachel Miklas. Uh, Rachel, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, and thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, very, very excited to, to speak with you. I mean, we served uh, on the same continent during the same exact time, but it's, you know, a very, very different experience. A lot of people, when they, at least for me, when they talk about, you know, oh, Africa, they picture Africa as being this one large country. So I'm very, you know, excited to hear your experience, you know, on the opposite side of the continent. Yeah. I'm excited to share it. Yeah. So uh, I guess tell everybody uh, a little bit about yourself. Uh, you can tell me, you know, what you're doing now, what you did in Peace Corps. Just let us know, you know, who is Rachel Miklas? Well, my name is Rachel Miklas, and I served in Ethiopia from 2012 to 2014. Uh, I came back working after Peace Corps and worked for the federal government, but then I realized I wanted to go back to school. So I'm currently at Duke University, sitting at the Stanford School of Public Policy. I just finished my first year and I'm currently in D.C. interning for Deloitte. Um, and then in the fall, I'll return to Duke and finish my second year. Okay. And then, you know, do you have any ideas of what, what you want to do after after school, or is that a... Is that a too much of a loaded question for you right now. No, it's not loaded at all. Um, I'm studying national security and counterterrorism at Duke. Um, Mm -hmm. So ideally, I would love to work for the CIA, FBI, or the National Counterterrorism Center, NCTC. Um, Crossing my fingers that possibly Deloitte works out and they give me an offer afterwards, but I don't want to jinx anything. (laughs) All right. Well, good luck on that. Yeah. So uh, now that we sort of know your future plans, uh, let's let's go back into the past. Let's talk about uh, Peace Corps, what this whole whole show is about. Uh, Just just starting off, uh, what is one of your favorite uh, Peace Corps memories? What, what comes to mind? Um, one of the best Peace Corps memories that comes to mind, um, I played soccer growing up. I played competitively from third grade on, and I knew that part of my Peace Corps experience, I wanted to bring soccer to Ethiopia. Uh, the town that I lived in was really small. It's about 700 kilometers from Addis, um, the capital of Ethiopia, and it's about 30 kilometers from South Sudan. And I lived there right when South Sudan and Sudan were splitting. So it was a very like 
time of like turmoil and like a lot of refugees coming over, but I still knew I wanted to have soccer be a part of it. Um, so I decided that I was just going to go to their, they call it a stadium. Don't picture what you think of a American stadium. This is just corrugated metal around in a circle. And then they have like two goalposts made of like sticks. And I'm pretty sure the grass is as tall as my shoulders. (laughs) Um, and then there's just cows and ox just roaming this entire area. So you never (laughs) know when you're stepping into cow poo or not mm-hmm. but I was like you know what like let's get a ball and a, by a ball I mean like a wrapped up thing of like plastic that has been like turned into a ball and something in the shape of a ball exactly and I was like I'm gonna go out there and see how many people can just like come out because I feel like I am the one white person in my town so everyone will say the Ferengi's playing soccer and Ferengi just means foreigner mm-hmm. um it's kind of an endearing term after a while but when you're there it's not necessarily the best term when you first think of it mm-hmm um, and I got these two girls that came out and I honestly thought that men would be the first person that people to come out, but these girls just kept coming and I decided to create a girl soccer team and we had about 30 girls coming out anywhere between, they don't really have ages in Ethiopia. So I say they were in elementary, middle and high school, but they all probably looked about middle school age. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just started practicing. I came out every week. I taught them the skills that I had learned and it was just kind of amazing to see their growth and then I found out that there was a league within um I live in what's called the Jima Loop Mm -hmm. and so we participated in that league and there was a tournament at the end of it and these little like rugrats just like transformed into the greatest team and we won the first game just barely and then the second game we just completely wiped them And the third game, we were short players because a lot of the females can't take that much time off from their housework. Mm -hmm. Um, So we were short players and we ended up winning the entire tournament. And it was just like the moment where you know that like your work had paid off. Mm -hmm. And it was just so cool to see that because I thought I would be creating some sort of like recycling project or I'd be doing some sort of something with AIDS or like creating something at the elementary school. But it was such a complete side project that just totally transformed the way I viewed my town, the way my town viewed me and like the impact I knew I could have. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, I think is the most touching part is that there's only two restaurants in my town. And by restaurants, I mean the family room of someone's house. And so we went to the top of the hill. My, my town was only like a T And so we went to the top of the hill and the power went out. And so all we had was candlelight and it was just like the most powerful, like almost it felt like like a seance or something where everyone just had candles and they started just doing these chants that were just, I had no idea what they were saying at the time because I I hadn't learned Amharic yet. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was these like winning chants, but how like you can unify people about how we came together and won and like, it was just so beautiful, I think, just because there were there was no power. And then everyone just had food being served. Um, food is, like, very much a part of their life. Um, and so, I mean, no matter how poor they are, food will always be there and always bring people together. And so we were all eating off the same platter, all sharing the same light, and all just, like, sitting in this, like, beautiful, chanting environment. And it was just amazing to know that, like, just me going to that stadium that one day created that like movement mm-hmm. yeah well wow, that's pretty impactful <laughs> it was I mean that was the beginning of my service too that was I would say within the first six months of my service wow yeah <laughs> well so I mean 
where do you go from there? I mean, if that, if that, if that is for six months, you know, you have another 18 months to go at site. Uh, yeah. you, you, so you set yourself up, you set a high bar. I did. I didn't realize it. Um, <laughs> yeah, but that continued. So I still mm-hmm. played soccer with them. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually got a site mate though. And I think that changed my service a little bit. Okay. And we were able to, um, move from there. Cause I was originally an education volunteer, mm-hmm. but I think it's just one of those things that when you get there, you have, you know, you're either needed or not needed. And at that moment I realized I wasn't needed at the school. Mm-hmm. Um, they couldn't understand English and I couldn't understand Amharic. And so there wasn't much that I could do. And they only go to school from eight, 8 AM. And I say 8 AM loosely to noon. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people are showing up at nine or 10 leaving by noon. I'm not sure how much of an impact I would have. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started doing side things like the soccer. I started doing grassroots soccer as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started working with the men and women who were living with HIV and AIDS. And when my site mate came, she was an environmental volunteer and she's the one that had this like brilliant idea to start a garden for the women and all the women were living with HIV and AIDS we'd get this plot of land, we'd create a garden and we'd have some sort of financial environment for them in the sense that they could plant the, or choose what they wanted to plant and they would eat it. They could mm-hmm. go to market and sell it and they could also have some sort of income. Um, so I teamed up with her and I think at that point I was almost learning more than anyone else because I've never planted anything in my life. <laughs> I think I did those like sunflowers when you're like in elementary school or mm-hmm. like those peas and you watch them grow. But I think we were a little ambitious in the sense that they gave us a huge plot of land. And I thought those little garden beds that are in your house were too small. Mm-hmm. So we went big mm-hmm. and we created what I think is almost like a two acre garden. <laughs> that, that is big. So I I, yeah. I, grew, I grew up farming and, and gardening, and two acres is a lot. It was big. We had um, an ox come in and mm-hmm. plow the entire land. We teamed up with the prison, which seems weird in the States, but it's actually very common in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are imprisoned, they will hire you for labor. So we paid them like a very small amount, but it allowed them to at least get an income in mm-hmm. case, or if they were getting out soon, it would allow them to have some sort of financial um, stability. And they created all the garden beds for us. We purchased the bamboo from there. There are these people in the forest, um, that are outcasts and Mm -hmm. they can't leave the forest to come into town. Um, they're called the Mencha and they don't, is that like an ethnic group or, uh, it's not really an ethnic group because they're not considered humans. They're considered more like animals or beasts, which is kind of sad. Um, so they collect all the charcoal and bamboo in the forest Mm -hmm. and do kind of like the dirty work where most Ethiopians will not go. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're not allowed in the town and most people don't go into the forest. So they have this almost like mutual agreement where they come to the edge of the forest, we purchase everything for them and then they go back. Um, I didn't quite go into too much questioning just because it was such like a odd relationship. Um, and when you mention Mencha, it's just silence. So it's kind of interesting. Um, so we bought all of our bamboo from them. Everyone who worked in the prison came twice a week and they built these garden beds. And I think at the end we had, I think close to 36 garden beds that were, gosh, um, they were long. Like I was, mm-hmm. yeah, like 25 meters long 
and a few feet wide. And they ended up planting um, like Swiss chard, carrots, onions, Mm -hmm. lettuce, tomatoes. And I think as far as I know, when I talked to my site mate, it was still up and running. So that was pretty amazing. That's what we did with the women. And then with the men, there was a grain mill that the previous volunteer had not figured out how to start. Mm -hmm. And so with the men, we created a grain mill right next to the Saturday market so that people could come and grind their food before they went back into their village. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's the work that we did with the men because the men and women couldn't work together. Yeah. And so that was like a handful of a project within itself, given that I didn't even know how to use a mill. I had no idea where to purchase oil for it or gas because no one drove a vehicle in our town. So I don't know where to quote unquote import gas from or what town. Um, And then the garden was just a handful within itself because the animals found out where this garden was. And every morning we'd come there and there'd be ox or rats in it. And it was just an adventure within itself. (laughs) Sounds like it. Yeah. Wow. You, I mean, seems like you did a lot in in two years. You (laughs) you definitely made the the most of of your service, the service side of service. Cause I know there are some volunteers that they, they go into a village, they go into community and no fault of their own, just nothing works. I mean, they, they they try. Um, I was fortunate. It seems like our communities were on opposite sides of the continent, but I came into a community that things were, they worked out well for me. I had people that were willing to work with me and, you know, we did gardening projects and, you know, I had a a little karate club similar to, to, to your soccer club because they always asked me like, Oh, do you, do you do soccer? (laughs) It's like, no, I do do not want to see me play soccer. Um, you know, the four year olds would just like, just destroy me. Yeah. Uh, but I taught karate. But, you know, I had a, a good community that was very receptive. And it seems, you know, you had a, a, a very similar. I, I will say I was very lucky. Like, I think um, in my country, I think there was a lot of harassment, mm-hmm. um, especially being a female. Um, and there was a lot of projects that just, no matter how much funding they got, no matter how much town support they got, just somehow seemed to crumble. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, and I recently just took this business chemistry test for Deloitte and I found out I'm what's called an integrator where relationships matter the most to me and I don't know if I'm like looking back on this and seeing that might be the reason why because I feel like my first few months I made sure I I knew everyone in town I made sure that I was learning the language and I think in the long run that really helped me um, just develop relationships because when we asked for land for the garden I think if the if I had been doing this with someone else or if I hadn't learned and to know as many people in town as I had, I don't think they would have given me that land. Mm -hmm. And the land they gave me was in the center of town where someone else could have been doing something with that. But I think given that I I built those relationships, I think it just kind of all fell into place. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, Peace Corps, I guess, hopes that you, you do that. I mean, you're supposed to get to site in your first six months or, you know, they say, I want to, I want to, I want to do things. I mean, you were overzealous and, you know, did the whole soccer thing, but, you know, (laughs) sort of like directed, Oh, just get to know your community. Like, like, don't really try to do much. Yeah. Learn the language. Learn the ladies in the market. Yes. <laughs> you know, they're, they're going to feed you for the next two years. That's true. You know, find, find your friends and just, you know, really start putting down roots. Because once mm-hmm. you have those connections and those friends, projects just happen. Yeah. Like, I would never think in a million years that before I had left for Peace Corps that I would be creating a garden, working for a grain mill much less even learning the language. I've never learned a second language in my life, and I've taken French 
Spanish. I've tried Italian. Mm-hmm. It just never clicked. And so I would never guess in a million years that that's what I was doing. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'd previously um, asked you a few questions or you'd sent me some information and you uh, said about killing your first ox. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> is it, is it a, like, I'm, I'm very interested in this story, mainly because you, you said killing my first ox, which indicates that there were multiple ox to follow. There were not multiple ox. There were multiple animals. So okay. I probably should have clarified. I killed okay. a chicken, a goat, and an ox while in service for my first time. Did you, did you work your way up? Did you start with the chicken and then, you know? I wish I did. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think about the order of exactly how it went. You know, I actually think I did kill a chicken first because mm-hmm. I think the chicken was for American Thanksgiving. Okay. I don't know why I said American because America's the only one that has Thanksgiving. Um, and then Christmas... They have that. They celebrate that in in January. Mm-hmm. So that's when I killed the ox, and then I killed the goat in February, I think. So a month later. So I guess that was an odd progression. <laughs> the chicken was a little intense. Um, we made like this whole video on it that's just gnarly. But mm-hmm. we went to the market, picked out our own chicken, had the dullest knife I've ever seen in my entire life, and just sliced the neck off that thing, and it was the grossest thing. I was of course the one that tried doing it in one slice and couldn't. So I had to come back and slice it again. Mm -hmm. And then from there we just like plucked it, boiled it and cooked it. That as gross as it sounds, wasn't that bad. It was the ox that got me. We are training for, it's called the Hawassa marathon. Hawassa is um, a resort town in Ethiopia and it's about three and a half days away from my site. So not only am I preparing for this marathon, but I also have to prepare for the bus ride out there. So we are like going pretty hard. My site mate, Dave and I, um, we obviously don't have like GPS maps. So we're just guessing every day, just going by time. And we only have a, a, our town is like, um, like I mentioned a T so we can only run so far and we just have to turn around and come back. So we had run, I think our longest run yet. And then we're getting about two and a half hours for our runs and we come back. We're exhausted. We were so tired that we just sat on the corner of the tea part in our town and we get our runs in I think the latest we would ever leave for a run is 5 30 a.m we tried to be out by five most days just because there's so many people that watch you while you run that to me it wasn't I wasn't getting my workout in because everyone would either follow or like watch us and so we got back it was pretty late the town had already like began its day and we were just like drenched on the side corner like probably next to the shoe man shining his shoes and my counterpart came up to me and was just like, do you want to see an ox get killed? Let's go kill an ox. And I was just like, Dave and I looked at each other and we were just like, no way. That's not what he just said. Like we must have misheard that translation, you know? Mm -hmm. And then he grabs my hand and we go to the elementary school. And at this time I was just like, maybe there's a project on at the school that needs help. And I'm like not understanding what he's saying. And so we go to school and we go to kind of the grass area where all the children play during the day. And there are these two cows there. And I was just like, there's no way that's what we're doing. We walk over and all of a sudden everyone kind of comes out of all these rooms and bushes and they've got these ropes and these like long, what look like swords and all these tools that kind of look like what you'd use to garden, but they were definitely not gardening tools. And the process was just unreal. Like all these children came because everyone pays for a certain part of the ox And the mothers are too busy getting food ready for the holiday 
to be there to collect the, the meat that they've paid for. So they send all their children to get this meat. And I was uh, like amazed that these children are sitting there watching this and not even flinching. Mm-hmm. And they literally just tie all four of the ox's feet. And then they kind of just all stretch the ox's feet by pulling in different directions. And then it just flips on its back. And then they take the rope and they tie it to two different trees, kind of like you tie a hammock. And then the cow is just having no idea what's going on. It's just actually very calm. And then that sword, they just take the sword and they just started like slicing back and forth on the neck of the cow. Just like one of those saws that I feel like you see when you're in a cartoon and they're trying to like these two cartoons are just trying to like cut back on this like tree. Mm -hmm. And they have all these like bamboo leaves covering for all the blood that's like squirting. This is probably getting really graphic. <laughs> I'm fine by it. I mean, you, I may have lost some uh, listeners to this podcast, but that's fine. Um, so after they finish cutting the neck, they cut all the way through. And then you wait about 20 minutes until it bleeds out. And then as soon as it bleeds out, they they make sure that no blood gets on the hide. Because mm-hmm. that's how they sell it and get money. So they continue to slice down the stomach and then down all four of the legs and just kind of peel the hide off. I didn't realize how quickly hide kind of comes off. Um, And then they took an axe, which they used to also chip their wood and just started pounding away at this ox's chest. And Mm -hmm. it sounded like a beating drum, just like they were all in unison. There's two just hacking away like simultaneously at this chest until all of a sudden you heard the biggest crack. And I didn't realize it was such a hard chest bone on this ox. And as soon as it cracked, they both just dug their hands in and just ripped it open. And then from there, they just started like slicing and dicing. And that sword was again their like knife. And then they had these palm leaves and they divided up all the parts onto the palm leaf. And everyone just came then and took their meat. And then as like a ceremonial thing, um, they eat what's called kitfo, which is raw meat, but usually it's diced up. Mm-hmm. But um, given that you can't like dice it up at this moment, you just take off like a slice of meat and everyone eats a piece of meat together. Kind of like how we cheers before dinner as some ceremonial thing that we do. They all eat this piece of meat that's raw because you guys are all consuming a piece of the animal that you've killed. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of cool seeing that whole process. But I feel like every single time I was just putting my hands to my face and just like covering my eyes because I couldn't believe what was happening. <laughs> yeah. It was am- amazing slash gnarly. Yeah. So did you contemplate going vegetarian after that? Oh my God. I think it's actually weird. I am not a vegetarian, but in country I was almost a vegetarian. I just feel like they cook their meat a bit tougher than I was able to manage to chew. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so a lot of the meat I didn't eat. So I actually had the exact opposite. I was a vegetarian for seven years before Peace Corps and then just fell in love with meat. Just, really? I, went, I went meat crazy. Yeah. Like goat meat, pork, you name it. Yeah. I'm a bit more cautious with my meat now in the sense that like beforehand, my dad's some meat and potatoes kind of guy. And I feel like every night for dinner was just like some sort of meat and potatoes. Mm-hmm. And I feel like after coming back from the Peace Corps, I realized that there's food you can eat to make a meal that doesn't include meat Mm -hmm. so i definitely still eat meat don't get me wrong like i am not a vegetarian (laughs) by any means we also we're in a country that has 
like known for amazing, amazing vegetarian cuisine and meals. So it is amazing, and I could eat that food every day for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I never thought in a million years that I would be eating the same food for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for two years straight. Mm-hmm. And I still eat it today. It's not like I even got sick of it. Do you have a favorite dish meal? I mean, I am a basic miserwat girl, which mm-hmm. means that it's just lentil and a red stew. And in Ethiopia, they put it in the center of your um, injera. Mm-hmm. And then once you start running low, they refill it. So it's almost like an endless supply of miserwat. Um, but here in the States, they don't quite do it that way. It's called a, like a vegetable platter. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't keep replenishing your food. Um, so it's a bit different. I feel like in the States, I do like that vegetable platter. That vegetable platter, mm-hmm. but definitely in Ethiopia, misrawa. Okay. Yeah. So, so we've uh, talked about you know some of the many you know successful projects you had, mm-hmm. uh, the graphic horror scene of the uh, the, the ox uh, hit on you know the customary like favorite foods. Now, what were some of I guess the harder things about Peace Corps for you? What's you know one of the I guess wor- I don't want to say worst memories, but you know when you start thinking of the the negative side, was there uh, any one thing you can point to, be it an event or just sort of an overall arching theme within your Peace Corps service? I mean, I feel like everyone has those terrible moments in Peace Corps, and I feel like I'll mention a few of them. Um, One that actually doesn't have to do with any host country national at all was when I first moved to site. Um, You do what's called a site visit, and that's I think a month and a half or two months before you actually move to your site, and you're able to kind of see your place that you're moving into, maybe purchase some furniture because all furniture there is um, made to order. So you don't just go to a store and pick up a bed. You don't like go just pick up a mattress. Everything's made to order. And I couldn't quite do that yet just because like, I guess my town wasn't ready. It was too far out. They weren't sure if they would have the wood. So when I got to site, that's something they had to do at site. And I ended up sleeping on, I had a mud floor, um, walls that were made of manure and some hay and then just a corrugated tin roof on my overhead. Um, so it was pretty cold at night, and I lived in the rainforest. And so the first night, I remember I had to sleep on the ground because I didn't have a mattress or a bed frame yet. And every day, I would go to the woodman and ask him if I could make a bed. And so I finally brought a picture, and he was like, no problem. Um, and so I came back the next day to see the progress of it, and he had told me my bed had escaped. And I wasn't quite sure what that meant. And I said, that's okay, as long as it's here tomorrow. And he was like, no problem. And so I came back the next day, and he told me my bed had been captured. And I'm not quite sure the language barrier that was happening here, but I'm guessing the bed had been made. And so I asked him to see it. And then he showed me this picture of like a, like I went inside his little hut, and I saw this picture of like a, it's not a picture, it's actual a dresser. And I said, no, like that's not, that's not my bed, like something you can sleep on. And then he told me I had escaped again. And this went on for about three weeks. And so my bed had been escaped and captured like 10 million times. And so this whole time I'm sleeping on the floor. And this is when I naturally got or organically got another counterpart Mm -hmm. who saw this all happening and finally helped me capture my bed. So just on my end, I think that was the hardest part just in the beginning that I had. Um, I think though what the hardest part of actually creating a um, project, I think, was just working at the school. I think um, that was, I just never felt like that was where the connection 
I had like developed and I don't think that connection really grew. I think they really wanted help at the school. I think they needed it. But like I had mentioned beforehand, the timing never worked out. I never knew when they would be in school, when they wouldn't be in school. I feel like every time I went to school, it was a holiday or something just didn't quite work out. Um, so I think that was the hardest part. And then to know that after I had finally applied for a grant and been given a small, I applied for what's called a small grant. And it was only, it was less than a hundred us dollars. And I had purchased just markers, paper, basic school supplies. And the next day when I came to my quote unquote office, everything was just stolen. Like everything, mm-hmm. all the markers were just smashed. The paper was torn. There was just graffiti all over and I think that was one of my lowest points in the sense that like you think you're making this breakthrough and you think you're trying to help them but I think that was also I hate to say but I also think it needed to happen because I feel like a lot of us go into these countries with all of these supplies that we think they need we think they need pens we think they need this paper but in the long run they're not going to have that if we're not there. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like at that moment I realized that's when I needed to do something more sustainable. And I think that's how like kind of the garden developed, the mill developed, like my relationships with the town. Um so as painful as it was and how much it hurt and you have to report a police incident just cuz everyone knew that the white person's stuff had been stolen, but the police didn't even seem to care. And I think that also really hurt knowing that all of my hard work really wasn't paying off. Um, but when I did realize that there's other things I could be doing, I think I realized that it probably happened for the better. Um, and that's how I got into doing grassroots soccer, which is done at a lot of Peace Corps organization sites. Mm-hmm. Um, and they got to keep those balls. And even if they didn't have those balls, that's still something that could be done there, even if I wasn't there. Yeah. And so I started transitioning into doing things that I realized that they can do even if a Peace Corps volunteer isn't present mm-hmm. and those are the things that worked out the best no yeah. that I mean I think that's seen across most volunteers that they they see that and they experience that that you know it's the sort of you know give a man a fish versus the teach a man to fish you know what what can you do to really empower the community that's there and using the local resources rather than you know just coming in as you know the westerner with I know how to fix your problems and I have money and I have resources. Exactly. Like, well, the, the second, you know, your 27 months are up and you get back on the plane, they're not going to have that. Mm-hmm. So what, what can you really build that's going to last? And it kind of sucks though. Cause I feel like as much as I've heard that story, mm-hmm. I had to go through it myself and f- for me to really like ingrain that or to really feel it. Yeah. Even though like I knew, I knew it would happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, at least you learned it. Yeah. Because I'm the hard way. There, there are probably many people that never really learn it, that they just try and it's like, no, I'll just do another grant or build another thing. And yeah. Like, It'll all work out. It's like, well, maybe it won't. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, was there something that you learned in Peace Corps or an overarching theme of something that has stayed with you post Peace Corps? I don't know if there's like an overarching theme. And I feel like I was pretty patient beforehand but I feel like patience is probably something I really learned given that there's no time. No one has a watch. There's no such thing as I'll meet you in 10 minutes. Um, everything is I'll meet you soon. And mm-hmm. I never know what that meant. It's all relative to the sun. 
Exactly. It's like, is it before noon? Is it afternoon? Yeah. So that's one thing I like it drove me insane. Like I am a very, I'm probably late to everything. So timing obviously doesn't mean much to me, even though I try and be on time. But at the same time, if you say you're going to be there in 10 minutes, I know a rough idea. If you're like 10 minutes late, I know you'll still be there in some time. Um, but I started to learn that when they say soon, it could mean morning. It could mean evening. It could mean at that exact moment. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. But at the same time, it was such a small town that if they were ready to meet, somehow there'd be some way that I would find out. And so I used to show up exactly at the time they would say they were going to be there, like just waiting. And I'd get so irritated just sitting there waiting. But then I started to realize, like, I can still go do other things. I'm still in town. If they need to meet up, they'll send someone to to get me or they'll come to my house and we'll meet. Um... And so I started to just become like much more patient and realize that conversations with people and just meeting people in town and even just exploring town like meant a lot more than like me sitting around waiting for someone. Mm-hmm. Um, so I became a much more patient person, even though it might not seem like it to my boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I learned patience as well. I was, I'm still am a person that is very punctual and it's sort of annoying because I'm so punctual. I expect other people to be punctual. Well, that was destroyed in, yeah. <laughs> in, in, in Peace Corps. Uh, but that's something that I, I learned as well. Yeah. And I am on time to very like important things, but I feel like there's a five-minute leeway for pretty much everything. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then I guess to, to end our conversation, do you have a favorite quote or local saying that you would like to share? And if you can do it in local language and then translate it, that's you know better, but no pressure. I do. And mine is um, actually pretty stereotypical. So if you talk to any Ethiopian, they will know exactly what this word means. And it's almost similar to how commonly used the word like is in in English. But the word is izosh. And Mm. that's for if you're speaking to a girl. If you're speaking to a male, it's izo. And if you're speaking to many people, it's izachu. And I actually have it tattooed on the inner side of my ring finger on my left hand. Um, and the only reason I got it is because I didn't realize how many people I had had an impact on in my town. There was the men that I did the grain mill with, the compound of the family that I lived on, um, the girls that I did a female empowerment camp with, the woman I did the garden with, um, the girls I did camp glow with, the grassroots soccer people, some of the people that I worked with at school, and just the people who I'd met in town. And when I was leaving my town for good um, and getting ready to COS, um, they created this huge event for me. And no one in my town knows English. Like, if you found someone that spoke English, it was just what they had seen from an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. <laughs> like, didn't make sense. But they had made these beautiful speeches. Like each one of these groups of people came together to create a speech in English. And they all ended it with like, Izo, Izosh, you know? And if you say Izosh Anchi, it means like it's speaking to a girl. Like um, since I'm a female, just saying like she will persevere. And so Izosh means that, I guess I kind of just said it, like you will be okay. Like keep going. If, if someone has someone that passes away, you say like, Izosh, you know, like, you'll be okay, keep going. Or if you're running a marathon, someone will say like, Izosh, like, you got this, like, keep going. Or 
if you're doing great at something, you know, or if you're carrying groceries, you say like, I zosh. Um, and so each of them created this speech for me. All of them were different. Like all those groups I just mentioned, they each wrote one individually and they all ended it with I zosh. And it was just like the most heart touching moment that I realized that everyone who I had some sort of impact on came out to not only say goodbye, but just to tell me that I'll, like, I'll be okay. Cause I wasn't ready to leave. Mm-hmm. I feel like I had, I had grown roots there, you know, like I had grown like a family there and I feel like I'd learned the language. I'd become part of that town. And as much as I didn't want to leave, I had to. And they kept reminding me like, you have family in America, you have your health, like you'll be okay. You know, like you can get a job. And they kept on saying like, I zosh. And like at the end of it, it just kind of just became this like word that was just like so close to my heart. And so that's the reason I put it on the inside of my ring finger. Um, just cause I feel like that's like the closest to your heart. Um, but even to this day, like it like warms my heart just to even like look at that. And then the girls that I did camp glow with, we made, um, friendship bracelets and our camp glow was just a cluster. Like I could, that's a totally different story, but just to keep them occupied, we told them that the, the fatter your bracelet is, the more you love that person. <laughs> and when the camp glow girls like told me I zosh at the end of their speech, they gave me the fattest bracelet I have ever seen. <laughs> but it was just like the sweetest thing at the same time too. Like it was, it was so hideous, but I just, I couldn't take it off. Like it was just so cute. And so the word that I just love and reminds me of my town is Izosh. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Yeah, And just thank you for, you know, coming on and sharing your story. I mean, every volunteer has a very unique story and I, I thank you today for, for coming on the show and telling yours and hopefully that'll, you know, inspire somebody who's maybe thinking about Peace Corps, maybe a volunteer who's currently in Peace Corps now will hear, you know, how you approached your service and get some ideas or get some inspiration, you know, to, as though to persevere or yeah. someone who is a return Peace Corps volunteer will spark something in their mind that they'll uh, remember that they they forgot about during their service. So, so, it does. so yeah. thank you very much. Of course. Thank you for having me. Thank you, everybody, for listening to today's episode. Once again, if you want to stay better connected with me and the My Peace Corps Story podcast, head on over to MyPeaceCorpsStory.com. If you want to know more about my personal Peace Corps story, please check out my new book, Service Disrupted, available on Amazon. Every volunteer has a story. What's yours?